Let's hear together from God's word from Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God by the power of the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, who called us as saints, grace be to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness how unceasingly I make mention of you Always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you, for I have long, for I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren that I have often planned to come to you, and I have been prevented so far, that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, to both wise and to foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, this morning... I ask that you would come and be among us by your spirit, that you would quicken our hearts, that you would help us to see more clearly what you have done for us in Christ, and that we would love you more fully, and that we would walk with you in a way that's more fully surrendered to you, and more fully surrendered to loving your people, that you would open our eyes to sin in our own lives, and to your glory and your grace and your goodness. So we cry out to you asking for help. In Jesus' name, amen. How much would you do for someone that's your friend? And then how much would you do for someone who isn't? I see a shift in our culture. I see a shift in the world. I see a shift in the church. And it concerns me. And I'm burdened about it. 
I've been thinking about it a lot. It keeps me up some nights. Because there, there was a time when we believed as a culture that we were to care for one another, that we watched out and did good for one another. Really, this whole idea it came from the, the Christian and biblical influence upon our culture. It, it found its way in things like the Mayflower Compact, this idea that, that we are our brothers and sisters' keeper. Uh, this idea in the Christian faith is the idea of covenant. It may be secularized to say social contract, but the idea is still basically the same, that there's a certain kind of obligation to each other that we have. But I've noticed my brothers and sisters denouncing, denying, degrading the idea of social contract. And it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder if Christians are setting the bar of love lower, who's going to raise it up for us again? And if we're going to deny the idea of obligation and care for one another, if we're going to deny the idea of the social contract, who's going to be the one to remind us that we're bound together by an eternal covenant? Why should we be obligated to each other when it's so much easier just to be ashamed of each other? We tend to read Romans as though it's a systematic theology or a letter of introduction or a missionary support letter. And it causes us to miss some of the truths that Paul has for us in it. We miss the pastoral issues. We miss the stuff that's on the ground. And sometimes I think we read Romans and we see that Paul is giving us unshakable truths, but we don't remember that he's writing to a city that's shaken up. And if you look, kind of, you could outline the entire book on the idea of what it is we have in common. It starts out, we're all under one condemnation, whether barbarians, Greeks, or Jews. We're all saved by one faith in Christ. We're all sanctified to one hope. We're all tasked to preach one message. We're all called to one mission. And then interspersed in chapters 9 through 11 and in chapter 14, we have there the need and the obligation for Jews and Gentiles to live together and serve together in harmony. And though this word obligation only occurs once in this chapter, the, it's the entire first section as Paul introduces himself is an argument for our obligation to God and to one another. Look at how he introduces himself. These are people he doesn't know. And he says, Paul, and what's he going to do? He's going to whip out his credentials, right? He's going to hold up his Beeson degree, right? <laughs> he says, Paul, a slave of Christ. In Rome, <laughs> these are people who value power and privilege and agency to be able to do what they want. And Paul is someone who, who says he's someone who's bound to do what he ought. He doesn't do what he wants. He does what Christ wants him to do. He left his power and privileges at the door when he entered into his calling. How was he a slave to Christ? Well, think back into Acts chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. There we find Paul then saw on his way to Damascus to bind Christians and take them prisoner, only to find himself bound and taken prisoner by the risen Christ. 
And if obligation has a meaning of the need to repay a debt, Paul felt this debt to Christ in having his sins forgiven and in the shame of his former life so that he could say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He told the Galatians that in Galatians 1.23 that before the church knew him by sight, they knew him by rumor. They were saying, the one who persecuted us Christians is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Knowing our sins are forgiven, being honest about who we were when Christ found us and saved us produces us, produces in us a gratitude that compels us to serve him. And Christ, uh, Paul goes on, he speaks of himself as a called apostle. He's not just obligated to serve, he's obligated to serve in a particular way, as a messenger. In Acts 9, we read again in verses 15 and 16 that the Lord says of Paul, He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him the great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Knowing that we're called to be sent gives us a purpose to salvation. But even more, he says, and set apart for the gospel of God. This is the idea of consecration. This is the idea of being put into use. There's a difference of intensity when we move from the idea of calling to the idea of consecration. If you're a teacher, you're a teacher everywhere you go. You're a teacher in the grocery store, in one sense, and students may wave and say hi to you. When you walk into the school and you go to the office and you punch in your time card, you're still a teacher, and even kind of more so. When you go into your classroom and you're setting up for homeroom, even more so. But then the bell rings and class has started. And suddenly you are setting about on what you were set apart for. This is the idea here. Paul said to the Corinthians about his whole time there, not just when he was preaching, his whole time there, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Faith in Christ has a way of broadening our hearts while it narrows our focus. We welcome everyone with one purpose in mind. But Paul goes on and he speaks about a strange idea, which is God's obligation to us. He adds the weight of our obligation to God by showing how God has extended himself to us. You think about friends that grow together. We rely on someone to the degree that we know and learn that we can trust them. So let me ask a question. How committed is God to you? This is what Paul says, he speaks of the gospel as, as being promised beforehand. When God first gave the promise to Abram in Genesis 12, you were already that promise's target. Paul said, I'm uh, sorry, God said, um, in you the nations of the world will be blessed. And in Genesis 15, God restates this promise to Abram. 
And he used a traditional covenant ceremony in order to get across his message. He had Abram cut these animals in two and lay them out as a bloody pathway on the desert sand. And then Abram knew what he would do next. Each person was to pass through that bloody corridor and it was an expression, may I similarly be slain if I do not keep my word to you. Only Abram wasn't allowed to pass through. He lay there on the ground as he watched the king of glory in the form of a blazing furnace pass through these pieces. Hebrews chapter 6 says, there was no one greater, so God swore by himself. The eternal God swore on his own life. He was indicating, I, the king of glory, will bear in myself the cost of any of my words that I fail to perform, of any of my promises to you. But he was also saying, I, the king of glory, will bear in myself the price of your failure to keep your word to me. This is not a a unilateral covenant. (laughs) God has covered both sides of it. By pronouncing and promising what God would do in advance, he obligated himself to keep his word to us. And this is further expressed by Paul as he talks about Christ's lordship revealed in his baptism, when the Spirit came upon him, and in the resurrection. When when Christ was raised, he was raised on the day of first fruits, which Paul speaks of him elsewhere as the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, he's a pledge and a promise for a harvest to come, and that harvest is you. The fact that Christ was raised is not an abstraction, it's your future. And the certainty that we have about it is that Christ himself is raised, and if he's not, then we're the most miserable of people. But knowing that he is, we can live for him. Not only that, but he gave the Spirit to us as a pledge, as a foretaste of things to come. God in his goodness put a bit of heaven into us so that we could live our lives homesick for a place we've never been and be drawn closer and closer to it. Making certain that he draws us closer and closer to himself as our life continues. God has pledged himself to the task of bringing us home to himself because that's his desire. Jesus said his desire is that where he is, we would be also. And he's going to finish what he started. He has obligated himself to our success. You know, I think we forget about this. When we walk through life and we think about our failings, when we think about how far we've not come, it's easy to forget that as serious as you are about your walk with God, and as serious as you are about walking holy, and as serious as you are about being a good witness, and as serious as you are 
about living with faithfulness in your, in your singleness or in your marriage or in your dating relationships or whatever it may be. God is even more serious about it than you are. He cares more about these things than you do. And he's faithful. He's faithful to bring you through each of these circumstances and to grow you in him. And he's not only, he's not only pledged to do what he said, he's pledged to make sure that you have the provision to do what he says you ought. I'm sorry, I think that's verse two, right? <laughs> We're also obligated to each other by the Spirit. As the beloved of God, we're to shine back that love that we've received and to walk into the confidence and the security of only, that only those who are securing God's love knows. As the holy ones of God, we're obligated to live in purity towards him and goodness towards one another. As those sharing one father, we have the obligations of family. Since the believers in Rome don't know Paul, he wants to, in every way he can, express his level of care for them. He expresses thankfulness for them, commitment to pray for them, desire to see them, intention to bless them, hope to be blessed by them. Paul wants believers at Rome to know that he is not ashamed of them. He's proud of them. He's not dismissive towards them. He's obligated to them. And he wants also to underscore this idea that as believers, we have an obligation to share Christ with the world. Christ's interruption in Paul's life was so completely orienting that now he can speak of being obligated to Jew and to Greek and here to be obligated to Greek and barbarian. There was a time not too long before this that, that Paul's only obligation to Gentiles was to avoid them at all costs. <laughs> But now this same person saw as his chief obligation to enter into the lives of others of all kinds in order to share with them the life of God in Christ. He said, though I'm free, I belong to no one. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To win Jews, to those under the law, I became like one under the law though I am not myself under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became as one not having the law. He's willing to do everything. He says, he goes on, but he ultimately says, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all, all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. That's an obligation. It's one that pulls us out of ourselves. And as Paul shares this feeling of obligation towards them, he allows the weight of the obligation towards him to be felt as well. He says he's not come so soon because he's been preaching Christ where Christ has not yet been known. In other words, he's been doing the work that they should be doing. And he's eager to come and to preach Christ at Rome. In other words, he's coming to do the work that they ought to do. And so he can expect hospitality. He can expect help because the work he's coming to do is theirs. And then comes this climactic statement. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to stop there for a moment. I wonder, why does this even come up? We know Paul. We know what he's about. Is there something that he's saying to the Romans in particular? Is there a concern that the Romans might be ashamed of the gospel? Is there something that might trouble them knowing that he's coming to preach? Does Paul's commitment to the gospel in some way raise concerns among the Christians at Rome? We tend to be ashamed of persons, of ideas, of actions that we don't want to be associated with because they make us seem weak or low or bad. The message of the cross at Rome did all three of these things. It cut against the grain of Roman pride and privilege and power, the very things that Roman citizens worked hard to gain and preserve. And it's a lot more convenient over time to kind of be ashamed of the cross. Because then the obligation to Christ just seems maybe not so heavy. And then the obligation to you seems even less so. But there was a problem in particular at Rome that affected the church and made the cross even more particularly embarrassing. Suetonius writes that the Jews got into conflicts over one Crestus, and this caused such a commotion that in 49, the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from the city. They left behind homes and properties and businesses, and communities were broken up. Among these were Priscilla and Aquila, who were in Corinth when Paul arrived. And when Paul was discouraged about the ministry there, he met them, and they helped and sustained him through the work there. He became obligated to Rome through these two refugees. And he bonded with them in such a way that when he left to go back to Jerusalem, he took them with him. And he felt so good about them that when they asked him to, when the people of Ephesus asked him to stay there, he left Priscilla and Aquila there in his stead, and they began ministry work. But when the Jewish people returned to Rome in 54, I wonder how the Jewish believers found the church to be. They came in and they looked around and the place looked kind of different and smelled kind of funny. They'd been cooking bacon and eggs for breakfast. Their names had been taken off the office doors. Their reserved parking spots were gone. Uh, their, Their plaques dedicated to Yitzhak Israel was taken down off the organ and off the altar. And the stories of the things that they did at the beginning of this work when Jesus first began to be named there in Rome, seemed to be all wiped clean. No one wanted to accommodate them because no one really wanted to be associated with them. The Gentiles now had power and prominence and privilege and choice of preference, and they could become suspect if they started hanging out with Jewish believers. They could lose their privileges. They could be part of the next expulsion from Rome. And now it's a couple years later. And Paul writes, 
Hey guys, thinking about coming. <laughs> and and the, the Christians at Rome can do the math. Paul's Jewish. He's notorious. He's kind of a rabble rouser. I mean, think about the, the, the riots at Corinth and Ephesus. This, this is the guy who was pummeled with stones and dragged out of Iconium and left for dead for preaching the gospel. And when he came to, he got up and he went back to Iconium and preached the gospel again. Maybe Paul should be a little more ashamed of the gospel before he comes here. He's going to mess up our lives, our safe and comfortable lives. And how should they respond? Dear Paul, thanks for the kind offer. You know, the guest room, it's not ready right now. I think maybe um, this isn't a good time. But ashamed of God's people is ashamed of the gospel. There's one gospel for Jew and Greek and barbarian, for wise and foolish. And since it's for the Jew first, Gentile believers still have an obligation to the Jewish people. Paul makes this clear in chapter 11 where the wild branches, Gentiles, are grafted into a cultivated trunk, Israel. And as he says, contrary to nature, any farmer knows this is stupid. You don't do this. You're putting wild branches in a, in a cultivated trunk is of no benefit at all. What you have is a, a sturdy trunk that bears the worst kind of fruit. It's a lavish waste. It's the, using the best trunk to get the worst fruit out of it. And the only reason a gardener would be, would do this is either he's crazy or it's out of his lavish love for wild branches. He's raising their status for no good reason except love. And this is us. We're here. We're the fruit of God's gracious gardening. But when the Gentiles don't want their Jewish brothers and sisters around, they're rejecting the trunk that they need to survive. It's like in an organ transplant. When the body rejects the organ, the whole body is in jeopardy. The person's life is in danger through one single rejection of one organ. But in this case, it's the organ that's rejecting the body. Paul's concern for their unity, it's not just theological, it's deeply practical. If they stop identifying as part of Judaism, they'll lose their origin story. They'll lose their flesh and blood connection to a story that has become spiritually theirs as well. And they'll morph into something other than the church. And furthermore, they run the danger of losing the exemption that the Jewish people had to allow them to meet weekly in the Roman Empire. They would be, they could easily find themselves reverted to monthly meetings. They could lose steam and begin to die out. So often, the people we want to exclude from our fellowship are the people that God has sent us and are necessary for our survival. I think one of the hardest things to do are the things we really don't want to do. There's never enough time to do the thing I've been avoiding. Paul starts in chapter 9. He's saying, 
I'd be cut off and damned to hell to save my Jewish brothers and sisters. And then he contrasts you Romans in chapter 12. And he says, what? Are you too inconvenienced to bring a kosher dish to potluck? Hebrews 2.11 says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are part of one family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. If Jesus isn't ashamed to call us family, then how could I be ashamed of you? If this gospel is from faith to faith, as Paul says, it isn't how we start out, it's how we finish. And it won't go for well for us if the Lord says, why didn't you love the poor, the wealthy, Jews, non-Jews, black people, white people, Episcopalians, Armenians, Calvinists, liberals, or conservatives, or Trump supporters, or Biden supporters, or protesters, or progressives, or gay people, or straight people, or trans people, or elderly people, or immature people, or sick, or victimized people. And we said, well, Lord, we did it first. We're to grow in love. And if we don't, we're in trouble. And so Paul turns to Habakkuk 2 to show us a little peek into the desperate trouble that we are in when we use our own techniques, methods, schemes for self-preservation. This is what Habakkuk is saying. Paul quotes saying, the righteous shall live by faith. And God there is telling the prophet, write down this message so that the person who reads it will run. It's coming. It's going to be certain. It's a destroying judgment. And you've got to be compelled by this message that I'm writing on these tablets. Leave your stuff behind and flee this city if you're going to survive. And beneath Paul's citation resonates the recent expulsion along with the ancient exile. A greater judgment is coming with a greater exile, and you're busily preserving your own privileges to reject your brothers and sisters because of their race or origin could secure your place in this earthly city and exclude you from a heavenly one. The only way that you can be saved is to run to the shelter of Christ. You can either take the righteousness of God that's revealed or the wrath of God which is revealed. Those are the two possibilities. And we're busy debating whether this is about whether faith leads to righteousness or righteousness leads to faith. And Paul's saying, run for your lives! As long as you depend on your impulses, your reasoning, your self-justification, you'll be destroyed. Your schemes for self-preservation are contributing to your own destruction. Will we justify our prejudice, our hate, our sin, our manipulation, our greed, desire for notoriety? Or will we take refuge in Jesus with all those who are gathered to him? We don't get to turn God's fallout shelter into our country club. That's not our option. And you say, well, I am obligated to God. I'm obligated to my brothers and sisters. I love people who are different than me. Great, do you know any? 
This isn't an abstraction. And Jesus has a way continually of turning problems back into people. And we have a tendency to turn people back into problems. Oh, I would, I would do anything for my brother or sister who is fill in the blank. Great. Oh, I would go to China. Yes, but would you wear a mask? Would you stay home for them? Would you stand for them? Would you march with them? Would you say that their life matters without the need to include your own? What would it get for you to change your mind about them? Many years ago, I was invited, as I often am, to do a Passover Seder at a church. And um, the pastor there, I had done somewhere, he was an intern. It was kind of an annual thing. I'd done one at the church where he was serving. And now he was called um, to this church. He was very excited to have me out. And he brought it before the the board of deacons and... um, they were talking about it and working on plans and stuff, and um, the head of the deacon board said, isn't there someone else who can do this for us? And I almost said his name. My friend said, uh, well, you're going to like this guy. Yeah, but I'd like one of us to be able to do it. Uh, he, he is one of us. He's a believer in Jesus. He's ordained Southern Baptist. He's one of us. He says, no, I mean one of our own kind. Separation is still here. And what is it that we grow to know about someone that causes us to change the way that we love them? Are we okay with them until we find out about their past, their genealogy, their addiction, their divorce, their trauma, their struggles with same-sex attraction, their ethnicity? At what point do you move from being obligated to them to being ashamed of them? Proverbs 18 Verse 10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous can run into it and they're safe. And we don't run because we're righteous. We're righteous because we ran. Those who forsake the world and take their shelter in Christ belong to him and belong to you. And you belong to him and you belong to them. We enter together. This is not a solitary shelter. And just because you run in and are saved doesn't mean you get to lock the door behind you. It doesn't make you the doorkeeper. You don't get to inspect everyone who comes in's birth certificate, voter registration, or ETS membership card. We're running for the door and opening the door. Who would we see inside that door of that strong tower where we could find shelter and say, oh, I think I might go somewhere else? In 1995, my wife and I we're keeping my families in when Hurricane Marilyn hit the island we were on. It was a compact, fast-moving storm. 
it arrived over our island and came to a dead stop. And it ravaged the island for 12 hours. We gathered everyone in the inn, into the inner hall, and as they came out from their doors, we could see mattresses floating in the air, the wind playing the aluminum louvers like piano keys while there was tornadoes in each of the rooms, and they fled into this inner hallway, and we gathered there. And soon we began to hear the staring sound. Above the kind of that steady roar, there would be these rips, and then there would be this boom, and the walls would shake. And another one, rip, and then boom, and the walls would shake. And we wondered, what is that? The next day we found out that they were roofs banging into our walls. Had we been in a lesser structure, we would have been swept away or we would have been crushed. The building kept us safe, not by taking us somewhere else, but by taking the blows for us. This is what Christ has done for you. Underneath your infinite obligation to him is his infinite love for you. The righteousness from heaven came down and took the wrath that should have been yours. The king of glory was, in fact, torn asunder to save you, to secure not only you, but to make sure that even your failures didn't cost you eternity. He has pledged the resources of heaven for his purposes to you, to love, to welcome, to declare, to serve, and even suffer on behalf of those he brings into your life. So let me ask you, are you obligated or ashamed? Right now, I just want us to pray for a moment as we're in God's presence together. If you'll just take a moment, you can set down your pens. Let's open our hearts before the Lord. What are places or areas where he's calling you to surrender more deeply to him? to his call to serve him, to his call to care for your brothers and sisters? What are things that he's already putting on your heart? Perhaps God's been calling you to share the gospel in your neighborhood or perhaps far further. Perhaps he's calling you into the lives of people who are very different from you. And you've been concerned or scared about doing it. I want you to hear this, that God has pledged the resources to you to fulfill the call he's given you. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and goodness to us. We thank you for your servant Paul, who serves as a model and a reminder. 
Lord, not someone to hold up as an exemption, but someone to see as a pattern. Lord, we just want to be more yielded to you today to see others around us as of infinite worth to you and to remember and to share the great love you've shown us. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.